1: Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Matthew Griglia, the longtime producer of Why We Argue and a PhD candidate in history at the University of Connecticut. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut. It explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, or respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers. Today we have a special episode because it includes talks from the Conviction Workshop, and interdisciplinary exchange, which took place on February 1st and 2nd in St. Petersburg, Florida. So today, you're going to hear a bit from scholars like Christiana Heibach, Matthew Pianalto, Justin E. H. Smith, and Jen Cole Wright. So the first talk you're going to hear a selection from is Jen Cole Wright's talk, The Role of Moral Conviction in Imperfect Moral Communities.
2: And what's interesting in the research that I've done here is that if you ask people, and this is research that I've done with adults. It's research that I've done with young children. It's research that I've done with adolescents. If you ask them to consider a range of different issues, um, and you ask them to place those issues into a particular domain, so whether it's a value or a practice that people engage in, and you say, what kind of practice is this? Or what kind of issue is it? Where are they locate it, whether they put it in the moral domain, the social conventional domain, or the personal domain, is powerfully predictive of their level of tolerance. And this is one of the... so. And some of the research that I've done, it's as much as 80% of the variance in their tolerance judgments are being driven by the domain that they put the issue into. So this is expressed in terms of their, their comfort with people, um, disagreeing with them, feeling comfortable with diversity and practices, their willingness to support and befriend someone, let them sleep on the couch, you know, marry them, hang out with them, a wide range of, of interaction types of questions, help them if they're in need, on um, the degree to which they support the prohibition of the activity or punishment for people that engage in the activity, and also the degree of expectation of consensus, like everyone in my moral community, my reference network, they're all gonna agree with me that this is something that is wrong or there's gonna be wide disagreement. Um, And we'll talk more about how that works later. Also, the degree, literally, how close they'll sit to someone if they know they're having a conversation with someone who disagrees with them on an issue. If they think it's a moral issue, they're going to sit significantly farther away, they're going to turn their bodies to where they're not directly aligned with them, and they're going to share fewer resources, whether it's money or or some other commodity that's of value, they're going to share less of it when they think it's a moral issue they disagree with than a social or a personal issue. So people are using these domains as a way of regulating the level of tolerance that's expected in terms of their interactions with people who may disagree with them about something. And in the research that I've done, pe- people disagree about where these issues are located. And you know, um, things like uh, political orientation tends to be predictive of where they put it. What's interesting is once they locate it there, that's nothing else is predictive of their tolerance except the domain that they actually place it into. If I happen to think of abortion as being murder, it's a moral issue, it should be morally prohibited, That's I'm going to treat it very differently than if I think it's something that should be socially regulated, we should just as a, as a group decide how we feel about it and move forward. Or if I think it's in the personal, protected personal space of, of agency where women should be able to decide what they do. Uh, Vegetarianism is another issue, Uh, prostitution, use of recreational drugs. There's a huge range of these that people disagree on where they place them, including children. But where they place it then predicts the tolerance that they have in their attitudes about people, like to the degree to which this should be something that should be openly considered or people should be allowed to engage in it if they choose to. On the other hand, we see a really clear articulation, and this is increasingly the case in, our, in, our, in the modern world, where people recognize certain things as being morally mandatory, while at the same time maintaining the space for dialogue and conversation. So again, going back to the example of veganism, this is a really interesting place where people say, look, I think it's morally wrong, and yet I need to create the space for other people to choose for themselves. So we can think often of the, the way in which we have moral exemplars that identify and live according to norms that they think are fundamentally ethical in nature, and yet they don't. Th- there isn't a push to mandate that other people live according to these norms as well. So there's space for people to choose the moral codes that they operate according to, and we create the space for that. Similarly, if I look at the amount of resources that I'm willing to share with individuals, if I happen to think not only that it's a moral issue, but I believe that very strongly that if it's going to significantly decrease the resources that I'm willing to share. So it is exacerbating the role of putting things in the moral domain in the first place. Even though putting it in the moral domain still has predictive power in terms of tolerance, having that additional moral conviction is makes it even more strong. This is the, the measurement of um, where people sit. So how far away from someone do you sit when you're having a conversation about a moral issue? If I happen to think it's not only a moral issue, but I believe very strongly that it is a moral issue, I have strong conviction about it, then I'm going to sit even farther away. And if you look more closely at the research that I've done in the past, it suggests that that this, this precise kind of role in moral conviction is emerging. So for example, if you look at the way that people when I've had people identify things as moral issues and that predicts their tolerance, it is that much stronger when they have strong moral conviction about it. So if I believe that it's moral and I believe it very strongly, that's going to increase the level of intolerance that I express towards individuals who are engaging in the practice or who believe otherwise than I do. Similarly, if I look at the amount of resources that I'm willing to share with individuals if I happen to think not only that it's a moral issue, but I believe that very strongly, that it's going to significantly decrease the resources that I'm willing to share. So it is exacerbating the role of putting things in the moral domain in the first place.
1: And next, we're going to hear from Matthew Pianalto and his talk, Conviction, Detachment, and Humility.
3: How is it possible today for those of us living in an imperfect and powerful society to wash their hands of the many wrongs in which we are? citizens and consumers in some way complicit. If it turns out that we cannot realistically wash our hands of those wrongs, does this mean we are duty-bound to devote our lives to the eradication of them? What form would such devotion have to take and what room would such a duty and such devotion leave, if any, for those other concerns? In the abstract, these might be required, regarded as questions about the stringency or demandingness of moral duty. But when we start filling in the details, on the one hand, about war, poverty, drug epidemics, refugees, political turmoil, factory farming, and climate change, and so on, and on the other hand, concerns about family, work, personal projects, and goals, the questions start to take a more pressing and personal form. How do we honor our moral convictions, perhaps especially those that are somewhat vague, that concern problems somewhat remote from our everyday lives or that are institutional or collective in nature? How do we balance our moral responsibilities and convictions with other practical responsibilities and projects which may themselves include matters of personal conviction? If is to be taken as a guide here, there must be a way to answer these questions that also allows us to pursue our own versions of the Walden experiment. Otherwise, as Thomas Merton quipped, we become prisoners of every urgency. But when pitted against matters of justice, devotion to our own idiosyncratic projects may seem self-indulgent. Thoreau recognized that we cannot demand all things of all people, but that we should at least avoid gross inconsistency and hypocrisy. We can approach this challenge without falling into the trap of moralism by taking our own convictions rather than some generalized set of obligations as our sorry point. Here are the examples again. Do I condemn factory farming but still eat factory-farmed meat? Do I bemoan the time-wasting and uncivil nature of discourse on Facebook and then spend hours scrolling furiously through my feed? What general obligation is there to do that? The obligation to be informed, right? In cases like these, there are relatively easy solutions that will usually not interfere at all with our other projects. In fact, withdrawal of support, in some cases, will open up time for other pursuits. In other cases, the solution may not be so clear and easy, hence the need for contemplation, reflection, and the Walden experiments of the world. This is in no way to deny the need also for action, but as I've argued, we should be cautious to avoid invoking an understanding of action that's so narrow as to undermine the value of pursuits and projects that may seem worthless from the point of view that prizes efficiency, expediency, and results. For to be blunt, it's that kind of point of view that has at times been very evil. Thoreau insists, you must have a genius for charity as for anything else. This notion of genius th- shows up throughout Walden and refers to a person's unique abilities, skills, which make each of us suited for different sorts of occupations and lead some of us to feel called to devote ourselves to particular projects or professions. The implication here is that taking on a task for which one lacks the requisite genius is unwise. Thoreau speculates probably I should not consciously and deliberately forsake my particular calling to do the good which society demands of me, to save the universe from annihilation. And I believe that a like but infinitely greater steadfastness elsewhere is all that now preserves it. If Thoreau is right that we're not all equally suited to various tasks, then it is not self-serving to decline a call that one is not well suited to answer. Certainly there is the risk of self-deception and making poor excuses and so hedges all of this with this big, huge probably at the start. Furthermore, we should perhaps not be too quick to frame apparent conflicts between our particular callings and projects of genius and the broader problems in our society and world as necessarily taking the shape of sharp dilemmas. As Merton notes, even the monk, who in one sense withdraws from the world, he can do that with the understanding that such a person remains part of the world. One may even, as Merton did, by speaking on the issues of his time and his writings, continue to be engaged in certain ways with the world. Importantly, Merton did this not by forsaking his particular calling or genius, but by calling.
1: Okay, and next we have Christiana Heibach with the talk Convincing Atmospheres The Influence of Diffuse Factors on Conviction
4: Building. The first sentence of the text makes very clear that Jastrow's motivation to research on the psychological roots of convictions is closely related to what he calls the world convulsion of 1914. Jastrow oscillates between an individual and a collective view on convictions and identifies the tension between emotion, convention, and rationality as the fertile soil for conviction building. The original source of conviction is emotion, he says. And, furthermore, the initial factor in the genesis of conviction is the rivalry between reason and emotion. So these are the, the relevant factors, docility, contagion, complacency, imitation, and convention. And they lead to the persistence of convictions which are handed over from generation to generation. Seen from an epistemological point of view, which means asking the Kantian question concerning the conditions which make cognition possible, Gesture simply emphasizes the meaning of basic emotional or affective and preconscious feelings that shape human behavior. This links his theory to the theory of atmospheres, which is philosophically formulated much later in the 1960s. Under the conditions of an all-embracing atmosphere, people tend to ignore, adapt, or even change their convictions. That does not only point to the blurring borders between opinion, belief, and conviction, but also to the enormous impact of atmospheric constellations on conviction. From a media theoretical perspective, especially totalitarian constellations seem to reveal that atmospheric thinking and media infrastructures are closely related. The electronic human lives in an atmosphere constituted by electronic networks, which she experiences as as an extension and externalization of her nervous system. The perspective is an atmospheric one, and it is rooted in an earlier paradigm shift caused by the broadcast media, radio, and TV, a paradigm shift which could also be called the atmospheric turn, and which in comparison to the pre-electronic print and discourse-based media system has decisively changed the processes of media-based conviction building. Radio affects most people intimately, person to person, offering a world of unspoken communication between the writer, speaker and the listener. This is the immediate (coughs) aspect of radio, a private experience. The subliminal depths of radio are charged with the resonating echoes of tribal horns and antique drums. This is inherent in the very nature of this medium, with its power to turn to the psyche and society to a single echo chamber. For our question, the observation is important that with the advent of atmospheric media, as you can call them, like film, radio and TV, the poles between individual emotional explanations of conviction building and public rational processes seem to melt into a hybrid form. Furthermore, it seems that the development finds its preliminary peak in the current media technological development which McLuhan has outlined with regard to the bad temper of electronic human being. But is he right? I tend to say yes and no. What we currently observe in social media communication is indeed An increased presence of aggressive and affection-led communication, while facts are ignored and truth is not a valid category anymore. This might indeed lead to a change in the nature of convictions. Probably they will take over a new role as ad hoc weapons on one adopts to the needs of the situation. Furthermore, there are new communities which develop a culture of affirmation clicking on the like button. Although the digital networks are transnational and open for those who can access the necessary infrastructure, they seem to narrow the personal perspectives. The enormous amount of data, information, opinions and beliefs leads to a behavior which tends to minimize complexity. Via software-based agents we can build our own filter bubble, as Ellie Parisa calls it, where we only perceive what supports our worldview. Digital media are atmospheric media because they combine interpersonal and mass media communication in new hybrid forms. This inherently changes our processes of conviction building because, as Michael Lynch has pointed out, this changes the narratives with which we practice identity building, which of course is conviction building. It is quite fascinating that this this happens in a way Joseph Gestro and Gabriel Tart have already observed processes of emotional contagion and imitation. But all of this needs further investigation, and for the moment, I refuse to generally ban digital networks with their social dynamics, which are not all negative. Looking back into media history, every new medium needs approximately 100 years to establish its own rules and standards in close relation to society. This is why we have to carefully observe dynamics between the different spheres which are involved in conviction building. It would be a cynical joke of history if it once turned out that the openness of the worldwide digital communication network has become the fertile soil for new toxic atmospheres of the totalitarian spirit. Democracy would then have abolished itself.
1: And finally for this episode, we're going to hear a little bit from Justin E.H. Smith's talk. Conviction, conspiracy, and pseudoscience.
4: The
0: latter theory, which is, I think, we can agree, uh, in some sense, um, uh, the most radical of uh, of pseudosciences that you we'll know, discuss today, comparative creationism, symbolism, or the anti-vax movement. This is pretty extreme, right? It is uh, an extreme theory, and its recent popularity, I think needs to be investigated. Like, what are the conditions under which people feel they need to go for something more extreme? Uh, you're in those conditions, right? Yeah. right. Um, all right, but first, what may be said in defense of letter theory? Let's be, let's be charitable. <laughs> um, um, one is the basic phenomenological fact that the sky is above and the earth is below. And um, That's how it feels, right? And so in a sense, this is a lot like, um, or it's somewhat like the anti-vax movement where um, you have this basic feeling that, you know, uh, injecting other people's germs into my bloodstream, that's right. And uh, it's uh, it's similarly a kind of just basic reaction to um, uh, 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 authority. Right to the, uh, uh, the, the claim of authorities that we know better than you, and uh, the world is not the way it seems to you. Right, um, and it's normal to find people. It's, it's not surprising the, the problems we're looking at in uh, in science and the question of scientific authority. Um, uh, who has conviction, uh, in this kind of, uh, scattering of authors and ideas we've looked at? Well, I think it's safe to say that Karl Rove has it, right? He means that, that we are constructing our own reality and that, and he's not aware of previous attempts such as those of, uh, early modern Spanish Jesuits to do the same, but it's part of the same spirit, part of the same constructive uh, spirit that distinguishes between the relatively low grade status of empirical truths on the one hand, the world as it presents itself to us, um, on the one hand, and um, and the world as we will it to be, on the other hand. Uh, what about Ken Ham and Trofim Lysenko? I think this is important. They might be convinced of what they're saying. Often, and I think this is particularly the case, um, in uh, social media, um, it is really hard to discern uh, whether someone's offering good faith, or not, right? Uh, uh, this is virtue signaling, this is the case with uh, people assenting to claims that we might suspect they don't believe, but we tend to suspect we don't believe them when we ourselves don't believe them, right? Um, I think mo- for the most part, flat earth theorists are not interested in uh, cosmology, and in this respect, they're quite different from creationists who are very interested in fossils, right? Flatter um, theory jumps generally very quickly from cosmology to um, conspiracy, right? And it is primarily concerned with establishing establishing that NASA is a hoax and also that the hoax is really, really historically very deep because Galileo had to be in on it. In fact, Aristotle had to be in on it too because he claims that the Earth is round. So this is like some really deep, long-term Da Vinci Code style um, (laughs) plot against us, right? Um, But I think it's this distinct Fact about uh, flat earth theory that really separates it out and that really forces us when we hear people like, um, like Kyrie Irving was saying the earth is flat to interpret that claim as ultimately a claim of rejection of, uh, authority, right? Um, and a demand for, let's say, um, uh, Recognition of the value of individual uh, 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 inquisitiveness rather than than acceptance of what authority has. That is the charitable translation, I think, of a claim that I believe seldom involves true
1: conviction. And for our last selection here, you're going to hear a snippet of a freewheeling conversation with speakers and attendees of the conference.
5: I just want to say, if I jump in on that right away, I think Jen made a really important distinction. I said this to many of you, but I I might be worth repeating. Uh, When this first came up, the issue of blind conviction, Jen made the point that, well, there's two points that you can distinguish. You can distinguish between a conviction that's inherited from your social atmosphere, so to speak. And then there's also the question of whether the conviction itself is based or originates on or is grounded on, depending on what you mean, on evidence, right? So it's one thing for a depiction to be grounded or ungrounded on evidence. That's one question. Another question, and you might think the ungrounded ones are, in one sense, a line, blind, but there's a totally other question of whether you're aware of the right And those, those are all orthogonal issues, right? right? And I had not seen that until she made that point. And I just wanted to lay that distinction out, not, you know, for dis- for discussion, um, I mean, it, they often do travel together. I mean, it often is the case that convictions that we inherit from our, the cultural atmosphere and social conditions, right, social sphere, uh, are ones that we haven't reflected on, right? And that's often the case that were we to reflect on them, we might find that they're not particularly grounded on evidence, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. I mean, I think of way you know. On the other hand, there are convictions that you inherited from, as it were, your parents. I think of as a parent trying to instill convictions into my daughter, and doing that before she's really from early on, right? Where she may not be capable of sophisticated. Now, now she has been capable of sophisticated reflection early on as a child. So, and I, but I would still think those convictions were, were she to reflect on them later, she would see they were grounded in evidence, or at least that's my hope. Anyway, I recommend that distinction as one that seems to to all of our work. Yes, absolutely, So
2: it seems to be that one thing we might want, and I don't know whether we're looking for the content of conviction or just the function, but it seems to be that one of the things that we to be here is the normative. So it might not be any strongly held. Normative. There's a strongly held normative belief. In other words, there's normative implications which is one of the reasons why we want to defend it, because it's like if two plus two equals four turns out not to be true, it doesn't radically change any of the things that I value, it doesn't change my conception of the good, it doesn't change, right, but it's the things that are going to impact, whether that's, whether it's my sense of myself, like myself as a world being, or it's my sense of my community that I'm a part of, those are the beliefs, that's where conviction, I think, comes in, because then I, if, if that's challenged, it challenges my sense of what's appropriate, challenges my sense of what's right, challenges my sense of what's of value in a way that then I have to respond to. And maybe I am willing to, in some cases, go, okay, that means I need to reconceive myself, or I need to reconceive my society, but only when, like, Really forced to recognize that my conviction is wrong, and there's going to be lots of steps I'm going to take in before I get to that point where I'm just going to fight with hell to not want to change it. So, you have to really get people to maybe that's one of the reasons why civility is so important is you have to create a concerted space for calm dialogue and reflection and discussion, which is not something we're going to naturally want to do because of the normative implications of changing our views. So, that seems to be a piece that might be important to make. <laughs>
1: And thank you, listeners,
0: for tuning into the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you're so inclined, you can follow the project on Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.